And I wonder how you feel about that, suddenly finding out it's going to be singleness tonight. I wonder if we're all excited about hearing a talk on singleness. I wonder if some of us are thinking, oh, I'm kind of past that issue. Couldn't they give that talk at kind of Cord, where there's lots of single people, rather than a kind of Sunday night with the whole church family? I wonder if you feel like that. Well, let me say right up front that singleness is an issue that concerns all of us. Every single person here needs to think through singleness. Why do I say that? Well, for a start, that that kind of slightly odd term, singleness, actually covers a whole range of real people. It's not just the young people thinking about, maybe I'll get married one day. It's also people who have been married, widows, widowers. It's people who struggle with same-sex attraction and are Christians. It's Christians who long, have longed to find a spouse, but it never quite happened. It's Christians who are confused about their uh, gender identity, as we thought last week. It's Christians who've chosen singleness to serve the gospel in a particular context. It's Christians who are currently married, but won't be to the end of their lives if their partner dies. It's teenagers who are too young to marry. All of us begin life single. Over half of us will end life single. So we need to think it through just for ourselves. But, but actually, I, I hope if you've been here in the mornings in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, I hope you also want to listen tonight, not just for yourself, but for others, brothers and sisters in the church family. Even if it's not a pressing concern for me, I, I hope... We've been struck by the fact we are all parts of the same body. It's not actually an option as a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are part of Christ's body. So the question is not, am I going to be a part or not? The question is, am I going to be a dysfunctional part of Christ's body or a functional one? Which means, am I going to use my gifts to love people who are different from me and have different gifts? I think the marrieds and the unmarrieds need to reflect on that, all of us. How do we use our gifts for the sake of others? And I'm using the language of gift here quite deliberately, because you'll see on the outline, if there's one thing uh, I want us to get our heads around tonight, it's this big point that in Jesus' kingdom, singleness is a good gift. In Jesus' kingdom, being unmarried is a good gift something we're to steward, to use, to appreciate personally and as a family. I realize that may be hard to believe. Possibly if you're blissfully married, though I'm not sure we'll have many like that, or if you're unhappily single, that can be a really hard thing to believe. But both Jesus and his apostle Paul are clear that singleness can come with real benefits. Gospel benefits. You'll have heard that in 1 Corinthians 7. Real benefits. And just like marriage, it is a gift to be stewarded for the sake of others, service of God and others. Just have a look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. So we're on page 955, if you've closed your Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. No, not verse 9, verse 7, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. 
Paul says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is a chapter where Paul is speaking about marriage and singleness, advising how best to serve God when you start in different marital circumstances. Some in the chapter are already married, some were married, some are thinking about marriage. But the language he uses is gift. Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Sometimes Christians think that the gift of singleness is something restricted to a a particular group of kind of elite unmarried people who who don't struggle with temptation and are just really happy being single. I'm, I'm not sure that's right. I don't think the gift of singleness is is how subjectively comfortable I feel with being unmarried. I think it's whether my current status is objectively single or married. After all, it's not the case that someone who's married and finding marriage really difficult can claim maybe I don't have the gift of marriage. Verses 10 and 11 are explicit that marriage is not something we can end just because we're finding it hard. Now, in 1 Corinthians, I think you know you currently have the gift of singleness if you are single. You have the gift of marriage if you are married. That is, this is your current God-ordained situation. This is a God-given circumstance. Look at how verse 17 puts it. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Corinth was full of people looking at someone else's gift and commenting. We're to learn to live and serve in the situation God's assigned. But how striking it is that Paul would describe marriage and singleness as a gift. Think about 1 Corinthians 12. We're to use our gifts to serve the body. Here's the same letter. Good gifts from God for the sake of others. And Paul does think singleness is a good gift. Let's just look through the chapter. So um, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, i.e. single. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. We don't actually know if Paul never married or whether he was a widower, but now he's single, that's clear, and he thinks it's good. Or flick on to verse 38, over the page, verse 38. He who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. We'll look at verse 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. He keeps making the point. Do you hear it? Singleness is a good gift. It's actually better for many to remain single. Not in all circumstances, we're going to see that. But actually, for some, singleness is a good long-term option. Actually a good gift. Something you might want to hold on to. I wonder for those not married here whether that's how you would describe it. 
I guess some of us think singleness isn't really a good gift. Not really a gift at all. I know for some it will be one of the sources of the most pain and struggle in our Christian life. And I want to say if that is how you feel, you're not the only person who feels like that. And I want us as a church family to to understand some of the difficulties that come um, with not being married. Some of the reasons why it can be so isolating, so sad. That's what our first point is going to cover. Um, And let me say, I'm going to do my best attempts to flag up some of the areas, but um, I'm married I've just arrived in this church family and in Edinburgh, and I haven't had kind of heart-to-hearts with many people here yet. So some of these may not be the particular um, situation you're in, and please, let's talk about it together. That's part of learning to love each other, learning to work as a body, learning to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We need to just be honest with what we find joys and what we find struggles. But I think challenges will come from two particular um, directions, points A and B, um, or possibly C and D on your handout, uh, depending on which, which um, print, print run you got. Um, so point one, sometimes singleness doesn't feel like a good gift. Uh, and sub-point, I think that can happen when Christ, uh, single, unmarried Christians feel isolated in our culture. I'm sure that every cultural time and place has peculiar Uh, challenges for those who aren't married. Um, But I think there are three areas of difficulty in our culture. The first is this. Our culture is obsessed with sex. More people are having sex younger and more widely even than a decade ago, which means a Christian who's not married and knows that, as we saw last week, uh, God has said marriage between one woman and one man is is the context for sex. A Christian like that can easily feel really isolated Just think of our teenagers or our students. How many of them are facing a barrage of peer pressure? How can you still be a a virgin? Aren't you curious? You're a loser. You're a prude. You're frigid. You can't get laid. You're not having sex, so you're not living. The pressure can be overt like that, or it can come more subtly, can't it, from the media, the the kind of film industries, advertising, where sex and romantic relationships are the way to be fulfilled in life. It's what turns the lights on. It's, It's the key to being kind of fully human. If you're not having sex, you're not living. And the fact that Jesus, the most complete, fully alive human being there's ever been, as far as we know, was single, did not have sex, it It's hard to remember that when you're in the playground or the student bar or the cinema where sex is the prime idolatry. For many, it is what life's about. And so we need to take seriously how hard that is, especially for our young people. Self-controlled singleness. Secondly, though, I think a bit later in life, our unmarried brothers and sisters... I think can feel isolated when their peer groups start to marry and have children. So suddenly there was a great group of friends in your 20s and then starting to meet up a little bit less, starting to do activities that kind of work for the kids but leave the unmarried slightly on the edge. Worst of all, the singles don't get invited to holidays anymore. Let me say that Jesse and I, I think, began to understand some of this when we were childless for a number of years. Many of you will know we we grieved that. It was deeply, deeply painful. 
And one of the things that was painful was it felt like we were kind of dropping out of the life stage that our friends were in. They all started discussing nappies and play dates. We just didn't know what to say, how to fit in. Suddenly struck us that moment, probably for the first time since being married, that maybe this is what some long-term single people feel like. Who'd, be, who'd have loved to be married with children, feeling on the edge, struggling to fit in, really wanting to rejoice with their friend's wonderful news, but inside, real sadness, grieving. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a good gift. And of course, that gets worsened by well-meaning comments from family or friends or other Christians saying, wouldn't it be good to settle down, find a nice boy, People trying to match make you. <laughs> Thanks. I already felt like the odd one out. Pressure from you just makes it worse. That's the second area. And thirdly, finally, in our culture, life can just feel very solitary. I wonder if this is acute for those who have been married, widows, widowers, readjusting to single life. One of the biggest fears can be who's going to look after me in old age. We wondered that being childless. Who will care for me? Because Western cultures are deeply individualistic. Everyone's behind their own front door. You see each other at the formal meetings, but you're not kind of rubbing shoulders in daily life, not eating together, and that can be deeply lonely if you're not married. Isolating. So there's lots of reasons just from our cultural moment that might leave the unmarried doubting that this is a good gift from God. And we've got to pray that we as a church family will be countercultural in all those areas. That would be a good thing to think about. How can we be genuine family? But secondly, point B, there, there are also reasons why we might doubt that singleness is a good gift when we read the Bible. And this, I think, if you're a Christian, can be even more perplexing and confusing. So, for example, last week we saw from Genesis 1 and 2 that God has a good design for men and women, he made men and women in his image. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28, to subdue the earth. Well, how do I do that as a single person? We heard that sex and marriage was God's good idea, Genesis 2. Not good for man to be alone. Here's a fitting helper in Eve coming together at the end of the chapter. Wonderful. But where do I fit in if I'm single? In a world where we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, what does that actually mean for the unmarried or the childless? And then you read on in the Bible, Deuteronomy 28, Psalm 127, countless places actually in the Old Testament where children are a blessing, a, a kind of prime blessing God gives to his people in Israel. Does that mean I'm not blessed? If I'm not married, I don't have kids? Am I not really part of God's purposes for this world? Or what about for those Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction? Or gender dysphoria, as we thought about last week? Genesis 2 is clear, and we just heard Jesus repeat it in Matthew 19, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Which means, for some Christians, marriage is just not an option. As they seek to obey God. And that can be deeply painful. Others would love to be married but just can't find a believing spouse. In the UK at the moment, there are statistically more women than men in church. That's true of our cord group at the moment. And 
And it may well be the case that someone who would love to be married does not find a Christian partner and, and might be tempted just to find an attractive, non-believing spouse. Maybe that's the answer. But the Bible warns of the danger of that, the, the foolishness of that. So again, perhaps a single Christian woman seeking to obey God as number one foregoes the possibility of marriage for that reason and finds it deeply painful. How can singleness possibly be a good gift? Well, we're going to turn to the teaching of the Lord Jesus and we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 7, but turn back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. To begin the answer... Matthew 19, page 824. And we're just focusing on verses 10 to 12 for our topic. Um, but, but you heard Jesus being asked about divorce and marriage. Um, he answers by going to Genesis 2, just like we did last week. Um, verse 9 points out what a long-term commitment marriage is. Verse 9 of chapter 19, um, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus has a high view of marriage. It's a lifelong, serious commitment. But that triggers this question from the disciples, verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. I think they're saying, whoa, whoa, if marriage is that kind of commitment, woof, perhaps staying single is better. That's what gets us into tonight's topic. Is it ever a good idea not to marry? Is singleness good? And Jesus' answer is pretty shocking. I imagine the disciples were asking the question, not because they were kind of wanting to recommend singleness, but more to say to Jesus, steady on, steady on, you're starting to make singleness sound better. And that's unthinkable in a kind of first century culture. But just look at how Jesus responds. He actually says that some will choose to be single, to remain single. Verse 11 But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who've been been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. Slightly puzzling imagery. Jesus actually flags... Uh, Not everyone can receive this saying. Just like the parables, this takes a bit of thinking through. Jesus is teaching the upside-down values of his kingdom. But in response to the question, is it better not to marry, Jesus uses this figure of a eunuch to represent someone who isn't going to be married, have sex, have children. Male eunuchs can't have sex. They can't have children. Jesus is picking the stark example of someone who is going to experience lifelong Celibacy, singleness. He's also picking a unit because they served at court often. You might remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, one of the first converts. He was handling the queen's treasure. That was his job. Verse 12 talks about the kingdom of heaven. So I think Jesus is talking about Christian people who are single, celibate, servants of the kingdom. That's the image But here's the striking thing. Jesus describes three ways someone could end up in that position. Three ways. Just look at them. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth. 
So that is those who are incapable of, of marriage, sex, children, due to some physical or psychological incapacity since birth. And there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. So some are incapacitated by their circumstances, by nurture, by something that happens to them. Notice those first two groups don't choose to be single, to be childless. It's a circumstance given to them. But then here's the most surprising one, the actual climax of Jesus' list, the point he's building towards, the point that answers the disciples' inquiry. And there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, Jesus is not literally talking about Christians kind of castrating themselves in some kind of show of allegiance to the cause. The Bible never recommends asceticism or self-infliction of pain. It's not that at all. No, Jesus, he's using the, the kind of shocking image of a eunuch. He's using that to talk about people foregoing marriage and the possibility of children for the sake of serving Jesus' kingdom. Now, there have been periods of church history when this has been overstated, where clergy, for example, have not been allowed to marry, or when only the people who stay single are seen as the kind of keen Christians, and anyone who gets married is a bit of a cop-out. That's completely wrong. 1 Timothy 4 says, if anyone forbids marriage, that teaching comes from demons. But I wonder if in our Christian culture, we're swinging too far the other way. I wonder if we still take seriously that some might choose to remain single for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. It would be a great choice, says Jesus. Why? Why would anyone do that? Given all the cultural challenges we started with, given all the times the Bible says that children are a blessing, why would anyone choose to be single? After all, isn't our prime directive be fruitful and multiply? Is it? No, no, that is not our prime directive. Adam and Eve were told that. And actually for Israel, living in the land of Canaan, having lots of children was a key way to maintain their inheritance in the land. That's one of the reasons the Old Testament mentions it so much. But with the arrival of Jesus, something radical is happening. Do you remember our series in Matthew? The kingdom of heaven is breaking in. Jesus is bringing it. And all of this gospel is building to the moment when Jesus stands there and says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. That's how dominion is spread around the world. That's the mission of the church. That is our prime directive. That's the mandate on every Christian life. Spiritual children really matter. Disciples, making disciples of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, that can happen through Christian families as parents bring up children and teach them about Jesus. But it happens even more widely as we tell people about Jesus. And here's the thing. Single people are able to often do that better. More time to devote, more energy Less distraction for this great cause of reaching a lost world for Christ. Just think, for example, of the freedom that single people have for overseas mission. 
Think of the impact on the church in the UK of single people like John Stott or Jim Packer or Dick Lucas. I think of a colleague of mine at St. Helens, um, a wonderful, wonderful woman who has trained literally hundreds of women for gospel ministry and is single. I think of two of the most influential people in my life as a Christian and as a, a gospel minister. Single. And gave me a lot of time and training. Jesus says some will choose to be eunuchs through a single-minded desire to be about the king's business. Choose to be a celibate servant of the kingdom of heaven. And that is something we should support as a church family. So there's absolutely no place to always be putting pressure on every single single person we meet to hurry up and get married. For Christians, singleness should not be a kind of temporary waiting phase. It's not sitting on the shelf until life really gets going. No, quite the opposite. It's a gift, a gift to be stewarded, a gift that could be used to serve the kingdom. In fact, a gift that provides so many opportunities that some will choose to remain in it permanently for the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a moment, we're going to turn to hear from one of those voluntary eunuchs, the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, he had the right to take a wife, a believing wife, but he chose not to do it for the sake of winning more people to Christ. But just before we do move on, just remember only one of the three groups Jesus mentions chose that path. The eunuch image is a reminder of how painful singleness can be, especially for those who don't choose it. I mentioned in last week's Question Time, this book, um, Is God Anti-Gay? It's a a good read, written by a man called Sam Albury. He's a Christian leader and teacher who is same-sex attracted. He's also convinced of the Bible's teaching that that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, which means he is single and celibate for the foreseeable future. And he speaks in this book of this passage. He would describe himself as one of these eunuchs. And that is not easy. You can read more about it in there. You can look on, uh, for resources online at livingout.org. And there'll be a number of people in our church family, for whatever reason, it may be same-sex attraction, it may be gender dysphoria, it may be all sorts of reasons why for them... Marriage isn't a realistic option, and that's painful. So can you imagine how extra painful it is when someone encourages them to hurry up and get a wife? How unhelpful it is to keep dropping hints about how nice so-and-so is. As a loving church family, we want to be able to support both those who choose long-term singleness for the kingdom and those who have it chosen for them. Either way, singleness is a gift to learn to live with and steward. It's not just a problem to fix, to get out of. But let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, Because 1 Corinthians 7 tackles, what if I do have the option to get married? What if, for me, getting married is a genuine option? How do I decide? We're not going to spend long here, and it is a complex passage, so you may want to pick up things in question times. I'm just going to fly through the brief outline that's on the back of the notice sheet. I've said that 
Paul's overall point is that we're free to marry, but he thinks singleness has real benefits. We're free to marry, but singleness has real benefits. That's the overall idea. But actually, to get there, Paul starts by reminding Corinth, right in the heart of this chapter, that that whether we're married or single isn't actually the be-all and end-all question. It's not the biggest issue. So verses 17 to 24, our identity is not actually defined by our relationship status box any more than it's defined by our job description or our racial background. So in 17 to 20, Paul talks about whether people are circumcised or uncircumcised. But actually, verse 19, neither counts for anything. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. What is he talking about, circumcision, uncircumcision, in a, in a chapter on marriage and singleness? Because none of those things define Christians. Or verse 21, were you a bondservant when called, don't be concerned about it. If you can get your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity But the key thing is our relationship with Christ, our status in Christ. He who is free when called, verse 22, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And it's not wrong to get married. He's super clear on that in the rest of the chapter. It's not wrong to buy your freedom if you can, if you're a slave. But actually, neither of those things define me. Paul wants to start by relativizing the question. Our culture may tell us it's the absolute center of whether we're fully human or not. Paul wouldn't agree. I'm bought by Christ. I belong to Christ. I'm free in Christ. I'm married in Christ. And so whether changing my job or changing my marital status... Neither of those things should consume my attention. Contentment where God has currently put me, obedience to what God currently tells me, these are the things, says Paul, to focus on. It is possible to waste years, decades of life, thinking that when my circumstances change, then I'll be able to get on with serving God. Then I'll thrive as a person or a Christian. It's possible to excuse sin or selfishness on the basis that God hasn't yet provided the right set of circumstances to make the Christian life possible for me. And I'm not just saying that to unmarried people. Married people can think like that as well. It's possible to live life in a daydream about a different life. But Paul says to Corinth, verse 17, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned him. Paul applies these principles down in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Not that it's wrong to get married, but but it shouldn't be the consuming, defining issue in my identity. We're not defined by our marital status. And then secondly, eternity's imminent arrival does define Christians. So from verse 25 onwards, Paul starts giving advice to the betrothed, literally virgins, those who've not yet married. 
People debate what the present distress of verse 26 is. There might be some famine or kind of local crisis going on in Corinth that makes it particularly difficult to get married or unwise to get married. But actually, I think that's symptomatic of the last days generally. Look at how Paul goes on in verses 29 to 31 to talk about the imminent arrival of eternity, a fact that relativizes the importance of all sorts of things in this life including our marriage status. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, We mustn't understand this. Married people still need to serve their spouses. Um, Verses 1 to 5 make that clear. But, But Paul is saying, in light of eternity, neither marriage, nor our material wealth, nor our suffering, nor even our joys in this life are ultimate. They're just not the biggest questions. Because this life, this world is passing. Chapter 15 will remind Corinth, you have a resurrection body. That's the real life, the permanent life, the eternal life. Jesus taught in Matthew 22, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For all our culture says, it is not the ultimate question. And actually getting married, says Paul, does lead to additional anxieties in this passing world. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. You can ask about this in question time if you want details. I think I didn't really believe this verse until I got married, and now I really believe it. (laughs) You can ask me why later. You can speak to Jason and Rebecca or um, Richard and Yuko I was having lunch with and ask them. Are there added complexities taking a family onto the field of gospel service? Yes, many. Jesus says, Some people will choose to remain single for the sake of his kingdom. For his great commission of making disciples of all nations. Paul says, I would spare you the extra troubles. Be aware of what you're getting into. Of course, it's not wrong to marry. Verse 36, those in a Christian relationship who desire to marry, especially if there's a relationship where the temperature is rising, it may well be the wisest thing. But don't for one moment forget that singleness has real benefits. Our time is up. There's much more we could say. I want to end actually with two questions for us to think about as a church family. Two questions to think about. How can we better support unmarried brothers and sisters in Christ's body here at Chalmers across the whole age range and life stage range? How can we better support our unmarried brothers and sisters? And secondly, how can we make the most of the gifts and service opportunities that unmarried people have? Let me pause there and lead us in prayer.
Father in heaven, you know the hearts and the lives of every single person in this room. You know our situations, you know our innermost thoughts, you know our futures, what lies ahead for us for the rest of our lives. And Father, we all need help as we think about what your word says in these areas so close to home. Please, would you cause your truth to sink in? Please, whether we're married or single, please help us all to grow in contentment with where we're currently placed and wisdom as we consider the future and stewardship of the gifts you've given us. Pray particularly for those here who would not choose to be single but currently are. Please strengthen them, Lord, to persevere. Please give them eyes fixed on eternity. Pray for any who've chosen to be single to serve your gospel. Please strengthen them, encourage them. And please, would this be a church family where more and more there's no member who feels isolated or alone. Help us to grow in love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.